There's a book of strange and quite incredible facts. And it sells in large numbers every single year. No, I'm not speaking about the Bible, but the Guinness Book of World Records, a volume which contains thousands of seemingly outrageous claims, yet which are verified claims of truth. You can read in the uh, latest edition of the lady whose fingernails have grown to some six metres in total length. Expensive manicure. You can ponder the couple whose three children were all born on the 29th of February on three successive leap years. Or you may enjoy reading of the Scottish lady who, back in 2002, completed the London Marathon at the right old age of 90. However, while there are many staggering facts in this book, there is one fact which is conspicuous by its absence, most notably in this Easter week. But you will not find any entry that reads something as follows. Main heading, human achievement. Subheading, rose from the dead. Explanation, Jesus of Nazareth, 30 AD approximately, just outside Jerusalem. Why? Because we live in a day and age when most reasonable people disbelieve in the resurrection. Despite the testimony of literally hundreds of eyewitnesses at the time, many of whom were willing to lay down their lives for what they claimed to believe. Nevertheless, this modern scepticism is neither new nor novel. In fact, on the very same day when Jesus rose from the dead, one of his most intimate followers doubted the fact. His name will surely be familiar to us. For this man has forever been typecast as the epitome of doubt. And yet, Thomas was not only a doubting Thomas, but later he became a declaring Thomas who put his total confidence in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why I've titled this talk tonight, From Doubt to Declaration. So let's turn again to that passage where we find the uh, account about Thomas in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 to 20 and 24 to 31. And if you were here last uh, Sunday morning, you may recall that we looked at the previous incident when Mary Magdalene met the risen Jesus outside the tomb. And now we pick up the story in the following hours, and I'm going to use three unoriginal headings to guide us through the talk. If you've been around long enough, you may recall the senior pastor used these tags a number of years ago. The important thing isn't the headings, but that we learn from the content under them. Well, let's pray and uh, ask for God's help before we come to this. Heavenly Father, we bless you tonight for your word, the Bible. We thank you that it is the word of truth and as such reflects your character in all its integrity. Therefore, we trust it tonight as a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. We pray that we might see wonderful things in it 
And most importantly, that we will see and put our trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The story before us is really a two-part drama. Or you could say it's like two acts in a play. Act one and act two. Both of these incidents have an intimate connection to one another. And like most plays, they have an interval in the middle. In this case, a period of seven days. And then there is to follow on an epilogue that really sums up what we are to learn from Thomas's story specifically, and which also informs us what we are to gain as we respond to John's Gospel, the whole book, in its entirety. So, this is where we're going this evening, and let's begin at the beginning with what we might say for Thomas is a case of not seeing, not believing. Try and imagine, picture in your mind the atmosphere, the mood on the occasion of this first incident recorded in verses 19 and 20. The day in question is the first day of the week. It is a Sunday and the time is evening. But it is no ordinary Sunday for this is the original Easter Sunday just three days after the death and subsequent burial of the Lord Jesus. The place is the city of Jerusalem and by the security measures the disciples take they evidently don't want to risk it by leaving to go north to Galilee. In fact, we're told in verse 19 that they had locked the doors for fear of the Jews. You can understand their logic. They think if our leader has been killed in such a public way, then surely it will be no trouble for the authorities to swat us now like flies. And so here we find the disciples afraid, shut in behind closed doors, and no doubt a little confused by the day's events. You see, that morning, some of their women disciples had visited Jesus' tomb and discovered it open and empty. And most remarkably, one of their women, a Mary Magdalene, had told this incredible story of how she had actually seen and spoken with the risen Jesus. And so we don't have to think very hard to imagine the disciples' topsy-turvy emotions at this point. Fearful, confused, and somewhat bewildered. Now we gather together uh, this evening from a wide range of different backgrounds and circumstances. And although, of course, our situations are not exactly parallel to that of the disciples, it could be the case that our emotions are in similar shape. Maybe for some reason we feel that fear which grips us in the pit of our stomach or that discouragement that lays us low and saps us of our energy. Maybe we too have endured a trauma, a tragic event, experience which has shaken our world. And all news, even good news, seems unappealing. Well, the wonderful reality for the disciples is that while they do not wish to come out from their shell, Jesus is coming in. And we're simply told in verse 20 that Jesus came and he stood among them. Now I think that we're meant to wonder how Jesus did this. 
It's no accident that we were told a couple of verses earlier that the doors were locked. However, we cannot know precisely how Jesus entered except to say that it was miraculous and that Jesus in his physical, tangible, yet resurrection body was able to do such things as this. But notice here that Jesus not only comes to the disciples in terms of his physical presence, he comes to them too with his words of comfort. He says to them, Peace be with you. If you go to some parts of the Middle East today, you will still be greeted with these very same words. It's really just a conventional greeting. Nevertheless, imagine the impact that it must have made on those disciples at this particular moment. As Jesus' first words to them after Good Friday, and all the trauma of that, is God's shalom be with you. Now I hardly need to tell you that we live in a world where peace is a rare commodity. Where there is so much strife from an external point of view, human being striving against human being. But perhaps even more scarce is that peace which is an inner reality. Something which is more than just a feeling, but which is a state of affairs in a relationship with God where there is no enmity. You see, this is the peace that the world really needs. The Bible tells us that we are each born into the world with this propensity to rebel against God. We want our own way and not the Creator's way. And with such an attitude, we have made ourselves enemies of God. Those fully deserving His righteous wrath and anger. But the wonderful news is this. Jesus came into our world to bring peace to the world. Indeed, he comes to us directly, as he did to those disciples, and he offers us his peace. And oh, this is more than mere talk. It's more than those peace deals that people sometimes sign that are not worth the paper they're written on. No, the marks of Jesus' peace are the signs of Jesus' Surely this is why in verse 20, after he said this, peace be with you, he then showed them his hand and his side. Why? Because Jesus comes to us, not on the basis of our merit, but on the adequacy of his scars. When Jesus died on the cross, he did so as a substitute sacrifice, giving his body and shedding his blood for us on our behalf. That is the breathtaking news of the gospel. And tonight, if you've never responded to this news, if you've never answered God's personal call to you, then Jesus says, here is my peace. It is an offer. And it is on the basis of my scars. Of course, the appropriate response to all of this is one of gratitude and joy. And this is exactly how the disciples responded. We're told that they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. It's a fact of life, isn't it? That when you have something or someone with you continually, you easily forget their value or their importance. 
But it's when you think you've lost something or you've been parted for a period of time that you realize just how important that person or that thing is. But a year back I was speaking at another church and following the service I was putting my son Glenn into the back of the car. And as I sometimes do very stupidly, I put my file of facts on the top of the car. Practically my whole life is in my file of facts. Now you know what's coming next, don't you? And you're laughing. Shame on you. We drove off and I realized about halfway down the road what I'd done. We went back and it was nowhere to be seen. However, a couple of months uh, later, right out of the blue, a lady phoned us and said, we have recovered, we've found, somebody's found your file of facts. And right at that moment, I was thrilled about that. Well, if you take my little disappointment and you multiply that by a thousand, you might be getting close to how the disciples felt on Good Friday. When Jesus had died and the disciples thought they had lost Jesus for good. But then if you take my joy and you multiply it by a million, you might be getting close to the thrill they had, the delight they had, when on the Sunday they saw the risen Lord. May I ask you something personal tonight? If you're a Christian, how has your mood been this week? On this week that began with us celebrating the joyful news that Jesus is alive. As we gathered together last Sunday here, or wherever you were last Sunday, with smiling faces, with happy hearts, and declared this wonderful news. I wonder how many days it took, or hours it took, or minutes, for that mood to change. Have we been grumpy this week? If you're married, your wife will be able to tell you. Bored? Angry? Fearful? You know, someone has once said that joy is the basic mood of Easter. And maybe we could add to that that it should be the basic mood of all Christians at all times. Not saying that's easy, but that should be a predominant outlook. But notice at this point a very key twist in the story. Verse 24 simply tells us that Thomas, one of the eleven disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now we don't know all the details here. We can only guess why Thomas was absent. It's especially curious, given the early information about the disciples locking themselves in out of fear. Maybe then Thomas had gone out on an essential errand. Or perhaps Thomas just couldn't handle the news of the day and had went out regardless to be alone with his thoughts. Whatever the case, when the disciples relay this joyful news, Thomas isn't ready to join their party. And so he, in a very modern way of speaking, demands some evidence. I wonder if Thomas was a kind of natural pessimist you know the sort, the kind that always sees the downside of things? If you say to them, I'm going to give you a million pounds tomorrow, tax-free, they reply to you, oh, where am I going to put all that money? You know the kind? So Thomas demands evidence before he will believe. First of all, he wants visual confirmation. Verse 25, unless I see with my 
eyes, the nail marks in his hands. And along with this, he demands tactile evidence. Just in case his eyes deceive him, he adds, and I want to put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. Well, little did Thomas know that he would get what he asked for just a week later. And so we next see Thomas from this position of not seeing and not believing to next seeing and believing. Perhaps you noticed as we read the two stories, the two incidents, verse 26 and after in what we've just read, that there are many parallels between the two accounts. For example, in verse 26, we're told that the second incident also took place on a Sunday, one week later. That's interestingly tonight, by our equivalent. Notice that yet again, they're in Jerusalem, and once more, the disciples have locked the doors. Evidently, they're still afraid of the Jews, despite Jesus' words and presence. Moreover, it's in the very same manner that Jesus comes and he stands among them. And he offers the same greeting as the week before. Peace be with you. In fact, the only difference between the second account and the first is that this time Thomas is in the house. He is with them. And singling him out, Jesus quickly invites the doubter to make good on his earlier demands. Jesus says, Okay, Thomas, put your finger here then. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. But Thomas doesn't need any more convincing. He doesn't need any more evidence. And instead, he comes to profess, in verse 28, one of the greatest confessions in all of Scripture. My Lord, and my God. Sad to say that few people remember this part of Thomas's story. But as Bruce Milne says, because of this confession, Thomas is therefore not simply the representative of the doubter, but of the doubter become firm believer. Now notice with you three things about Thomas's confession. First of all, it was a personal confession. Thomas could have simply said, with a great degree of accuracy, simply Lord and God. But notice that he adds the pronoun, my. He doesn't just say Lord, he says my Lord. He doesn't just refer to God abstractly, but he says my God. Oh, it's tragic when you hear someone say, hey, Jesus is good for you, but just not for me. Or perhaps they say, well, my relatives got religion. My wife, my husband, they're into Jesus. But it's just not for me. And for them, Jesus is as impersonal as the junk mail that comes through the door. Notice secondly, that Thomas affirms the lordship of Jesus. Thomas could have said here, and we might have expected it, Saviour and God, or Saviour and Lord. But he focuses, first of all, on the Lordship of Jesus. Now that's not to say that Thomas doesn't appreciate the saving power of Jesus, the difference made by his scars. It's rather to say that at this moment, 
As Thomas stands face to face with the risen Jesus in all his power, he recognizes Jesus' indisputable right to be Lord, to be master of his life. You see, Christianity is not about becoming God's chum. Although, by God's wonderful grace, we are called friends of God. But it is rightly a relationship between master and servant, leader and follower. I wonder tonight whether Jesus is your Lord in this kind of way. But observe finally that Thomas' confession affirms the divinity of Jesus. You see, Thomas may have been a doubter, but he was not dull. And he puts two and two together. He realizes that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, and ordinary people don't do things like that, then Jesus must be extraordinary. He must be more than a man. He must be God in human flesh. Friends, I wonder this evening whether you've ever made a confession quite like this. I'm not asking notice if you've ever been a doubter because we've pretty much all been there. But rather, have you ever become a believer? You see, Thomas shows us that the way to knowing God is not by religious attainment or by good moral behaviour or any other such means. Rather, it is through faith in the risen Lord who has paid the price for our sins with his blood. So, have you believed as Thomas believed? Have you or will you tonight confess as Thomas confessed? Now perhaps you say, well, maybe I would. But like Thomas, I need more evidence. Well, if that's you, then let me turn you briefly to the last point and the epilogue, which is not seeing and yet believing. Without doubt, Thomas believed on the basis of what he sees. Jesus says this in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. And yet Jesus adds an important caveat. One that is vital for us, those for whom we do not have the privilege to visually inspect the resurrected body of Christ. So listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, it's possible, says Jesus, indeed it is most acceptable for people to trust me without first having seen me. And one of the reasons Jesus can say this reasonably is because of what John, the writer of this gospel, says next. Look at verse 31. John says of his whole gospel, he says that these are written, these accounts, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, we do not have to take a leap in the dark. We do not need to possess a blind faith. Rather, we can examine and rely upon the written evidence as now recorded in what we have as Scripture as the Bible. You think of a jury trial. When individuals are called up, 
They have never visually witnessed the crime in question. Indeed, if they have, then they would automatically be disqualified. And yet, through the eyes of these first-hand witnesses and their evidence, which is weighed, people are able to make a reasonable judgment as to the truth of the case. So I wonder, have you examined the case for Easter? Have you scrutinized the case for Christ? Have you ever read the transcript, the testimonies in the gospel? If not, then I encourage you to do so with an open mind and with a prayerful spirit. Now, a few words of conclusion and a challenge just before we come to the Lord's table. The place will remember the scars of Jesus, his body broken and his blood shed. I wonder if you will leave tonight, first of all, and come to this table in a few moments as a doubting Thomas. Like Thomas on that first occasion when he brushed aside the claims of the other apostles without checking their credibility. Or I wonder if on the other hand you will be a declaring Thomas. Like Thomas in the second instance. Maybe for the first time simply but meaningfully confessing that Jesus is your Lord, He is your God, He is your Saviour. There is no better time and there is no better place to do that than now and here. But a final challenge to those of us who are Christians, part of God's family, at the end of this Easter week and at the beginning of a new week. I wonder, are you a delighting disciple? The question is not, are you dutiful or are you determined? But rather, are you joyful? Or has fear and doubt stolen in and taken the place where peace and joy should be? If so, then let's fix our eyes afresh on Jesus tonight. And let us train our vision on the scars of his suffering that were made for our eternal joy. Let's pray together.